The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ today. It's wonderful to be with you, wonderful to be back, and to be back in the pulpit after a fantastic missions month. And it's been great over the last couple months to see the room is pretty full in here. And that's been encouraging, mostly just because of all the brand new faces that we see, the new members that have been coming in, and the new visitors. So if you are a visitor this morning, we just want to thank you for being here. We want to thank you for choosing to come worship with us and check things out and uh, as we always say, we'd love a chance to meet you, to talk with you. We've got visitor cards in the lobby. There's a QR code in your Sunday sheet if you want to access the digital version. And we'd just love a chance to connect with you this morning. We're in week two of a new sermon series called Gathered by God, the Work of the People. And Ben kicked us off last week in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram, the call to be a blessing to all nations, to worship on behalf of the world. And you might recognize the subtitle in our sermon series, The Work of the People. That's kind of a wooden rendering of the word liturgy. Liturgy is probably a word you've heard tossed around. It really kind of means a a formal plan for worship. Uh, But if you kind of break the word down and separate it apart, you could say that it means the work of the people. And that's what worship is. That's what following, serving, worshiping God is. That is our work as the people of God. And so this morning, we spend a little more time together learning about the work of the people in the book specifically of Exodus. We're in Exodus 19, one through eight. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Let's pray. God, we praise you. We give thanks for your gathering us here this morning. You're calling us here to this place to worship you, to do the work of the people, to learn the postures of life with you for the sake of the world. 
God, bless us as we seek to know you, as we seek to hear from you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word in our hearing. And I ask you, God, yet again for the gift of preaching. We praise you, Lord, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever. Amen. My mother-in-law ruined cereal for me. I should say and preface that I love my in-laws. I've probably said that many times in case they're watching on the live stream. I love my in-laws. I really do, though. They're fantastic people. That said, my mother-in-law ruined cereal for me, and not the taste or texture or substance of cereal itself. She ruined the experience of eating cereal for me. And it might sound like I'm blaming her, and I am. (laughs) But really, I'm honestly the only one at fault because all she really did was point out to me something that I do while I eat cereal. So apparently, when I eat cereal, I take my scoop of cereal, and apparently I can't put cereal shoveled into my mouth without clanking the metal spoon on my teeth. I didn't know that was a thing. I might be ruining cereal for some of you right now as well. I I didn't know that that was a thing that I did or that other people didn't do. I guess most people can get cereal into their mouth without clanking their teeth. I apparently do that, and I've been doing that for about three decades. I didn't know this, and now I do. And I can never eat cereal the same way again. I mean, you would think that I could just adjust my behavior, but you'd be surprised after a million bites of cereal, it's hard to make a million and one different. So cereal is not the same experience for me anymore. It's been changed by something that was always there that was basically just hidden in plain sight. I just didn't hear it or feel it. So we're in Gathered by God this morning in the book of Exodus, and I've spent a lot of time in Exodus. Church my whole life, classes at school, a sermon series we preached a few years ago, and recently I had pointed out to me something about Exodus that I had never heard or seen or felt before, and that is that in the book of Exodus, at the very heart of this book, is worship. Worship is a primary theme, a primary purpose and motif in the book of Exodus. It's always been there. I've never realized that it's basically been hidden in plain sight, but I haven't thought about Exodus as a book for worship. When I think Bible books and worship, I go probably to Psalms right away. But if we look closely at the book of Exodus, we'll find that hidden in plain sight, something we've never noticed that's been as invisible as an unexamined habit, has been the centrality of worshiping God. And so I want to look at that this morning with you in the light of Exodus chapter 19. But before we get there, we got to go back further. Because really, this is a thread that runs all the way throughout the book, and we got to go all the way back to that iconic chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. 
You probably know the story. Moses, born of a Hebrew woman. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, but he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. A series of unfortunate events. Moses leaves Egypt, and it's on Mount Sinai that he encounters a burning bush. And God speaks to him through this burning bush. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, God says, The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So Moses displays his infamous fear and hesitancy here. He says, God, who am I to go to Pharaoh to free Israel? Who am I? God says, I'll be with you. And here's how you're going to know. Here's the sign I'm going to give you that it was me who sent you, freeing you. You're going to come right back here with Israel and worship me. And so we find right at the very beginning, this pivotal moment in Exodus, that worshiping God is the proof of freedom. God says, that's how you're going to know, Moses. All of Israel, freed, will come to this mountain together, and you will worship me. That's how you know I did it. That's how you know I'm the one who sent you and freed you. Worship. There's a strange feature about this proof, though, this reassurance, this sign, is that it's going to come after the fact, That's not typically the way we like our reassurance. We usually like that on the front end of taking up a task. We don't usually have a project manager talking to a subcontractor who says, you know, the way you can trust me that I'm good for this money, the way you know that I'm good for it is when you're cashing that check at the bank. That's when you know I'm good for this money. I don't know, that's not real reassuring to me. Maybe that happens, I don't know that world very well. But to Moses, this doesn't seem like the most reassuring thing to say, hey, in the future, you're gonna be worshiping here. That's the proof. But that is the proof. And yet, God gives him something more. Notice in verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. Sometimes when we're in sorrow, struggle, doubt, strife, we ask God for certainty and he gives us his company. We ask God for proof, and he gives us his presence. God, who is beyond space, time, matter, who cannot be empirically proven under a microscope, we don't get that certainty, this side of things. But God says, I will be with you. Let that be enough. There's actually an old 
Switchfoot song, the chorus says, let me know that you're near me, let me know your touch, let me know that you love me, and let that be enough. We ask for certainty, we ask for proof. God gives us his company and his presence. May we let that be enough. But as we move through Exodus, we find that worshiping God is not just the proof of freedom, there's more to it. And so the story continues and Moses eventually does agree and he goes to Pharaoh and he says those famous words that we know, let my people go, that God tells him to say. And Pharaoh says no and God combats Pharaoh with a plague and Moses comes back and the cycle repeats and the cycle repeats again and again. And we know those four words, let my people go, that God continually tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, but do we remember what comes after that? We know, let my people go, but what comes after those four words? In chapter seven, this is the first time we hear it, in verse 16, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to say to you, to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Worshiping God is the point of freedom. The whole point of being free is so that we may live lives indebted to God. The whole point of being free is so that we may serve and follow and worship the God who has made us free. Remember, this isn't just a freedom for freedom's sake. It's not just a negative freedom without any constraints. As we've said before, this is not just a freedom from something. It's a freedom for something. It's a positive freedom so that we can worship God. We forget that. We remember, let my people go. We don't remember why. And if we do remember why, we might think that it's the promised land. That's why we're freed, so we can get to the promised land. That's why Israel is taken out of bondage. And yes, that's true, but the whole point of the promised land is to have a place to live and be with God and worship him. Worshiping God is the point of the exodus. But Pharaoh says no. Pharaoh continues to say no, and there's this struggle, this struggle between power and worship, between freedom and worship, between political power and worship that we see play out between Moses and Pharaoh. And these two things, political power and worship, are in constant tension throughout history, really, not just in Exodus, but we've seen this in our own context today, haven't we? If you remember your civics class from high school, you might remember that 1990 landmark Supreme Court case, Employment Division versus Smith. If you don't remember, Alfred Smith was a member of the Native American church, and he was, that is a church that uses peyote, which is a drug, an illegal substance, but they use it as kind of a sacrament during worship, and so Alfred Smith worshiped there, used peyote, but he also happened to be a drug rehab counselor. 
And so he was fired uh, from this rehab counseling position for using the peyote, and he wanted the unemployment benefits, but eventually this case went to the Oregon Supreme Court all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they actually ruled against Smith, saying that, no, the state doesn't have to make an exception for religious ceremonies, but they can, but they don't have to. There's that struggle again, that struggle between political power and worship, between freedom and worship. A struggle that we see play out in an entirely different context with Pharaoh and Moses. Right, so Moses keeps coming back to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no. And then Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, yes, but you gotta worship here in Egypt. You can't go out in the wilderness. Moses says, not good enough. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, yes, but you gotta leave the children here. Can't take them. Moses says, no, the cycle continues to repeat again and again and again until finally in chapter 10. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Only your flocks and your herds shall remain behind. Even your children may go with you. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must choose some of them for the worship of the Lord our God, and we will not know what to use to worship the Lord until we arrive there. In worshiping God, everything must go. Nothing can stay. Because we don't know what the Lord will require of us. We are free to worship God, but we are constrained by him, the most liberating constraint, and yet we don't know what he'll require of us. Everything must be held with an empty palm to be put on the altar before him. We don't know what he'll ask of us. We don't know what sacred cows of ours he may have us sacrifice. And that is why we must be free, all of ourselves, to be given to God in service and worship. Because worshiping God is the very point of our freedom. And so Israel is set free. And as the story goes, they walk through the Red Sea and God defeats Pharaoh and his army and after several wilderness episodes, they finally get back to Mount Sinai, to that proof Moses was waiting for. They get to come and worship God and in Exodus 19, we see it says, then Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. This is really kind of a continuation, an expansion, and an intensifying of Moses' original experience with the burning bush. This is kind of an intensifying of chapter three, right here in chapter 19, because we've got the collective people of Israel now with him. And I want to focus on God calls Israel his, his treasured possession, his holy nation, and specifically, he says they're a priestly kingdom, a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? priest is in charge of worship. The priest is in charge of sacrifice, of instructing people in the ways of life with God. And priests specifically, as one commentator has pointed out, have kind of two directions for their vocation. Right? Priests are mediators, Priests stand between God and the world, between God and his people. And so priests have this kind of upward vocation. They have this vocation of standing as a representative of the people and worshiping and praying to God on their behalf, of representing the people to God. And yet they also have this kind of downward vocation vocation of standing and mediating the presence and gift and grace and salvation of God to the people. They stand in the middle here. Priests are the way that God communicates to the people and the way that the people communicate to God. And so we see in this vocation for Israel as a priestly kingdom that Worshiping God is the plan for freedom. It's not just the proof. It's not just the point. Worshiping God is the plan for freedom. The way that God makes the world free to worship him is through the free worship of his people, Israel. They're the ones as priests who stand between the world and God and mediate his presence to the world and worship on behalf of the world towards God, teaching them how to live in a Godward direction. Worshiping God is the plan for the freedom of all of creation. Those famous words of Moses that we know, let my people go. I think partly we know those words so well because they've been enshrined in history through an African-American spiritual, go down Moses. Remember when Israel was in Egypt's land? Let my people go. These words have been important to African-American people for their entire history in America. They've read the book of Exodus alongside of Israel seeing correlation between their enslavement and their own enslavement. And so these spirituals developed, this Jesus worship developed with a lot of this language from Exodus. Spirituals that were sung in the plantation fields in slavery. 
But what some have shown and argued is that within these spirituals, these songs of Jesus worship, is not just worship, but within these very songs are hidden messages of freedom. That there are songs that talk about the stars, that talk about directions to freedom through the Underground Railroad that were sung in the fields. You see, they longed for freedom, but leaving or even planning to leave was dangerous. It could cost you your life, so you have to communicate in secrecy. You have to communicate in these hidden codes. And there's even a song called Steal Away to Jesus. Steal Away to Jesus. That is Jesus' worship, but embedded within is this hidden message of liberation this way to notify people when to stay and when to leave for freedom. You see, worshiping God is the plan for freedom because worship shows us the way to freedom. We worship Jesus because embedded within our Jesus worship Embedded within worship of God is the plan to his salvation and liberation. Embedded within our worship is this priestly vocation that the people of Israel have to show the world the way to freedom in God. And because of Jesus Christ, we get to be grafted into Israel. Because of Jesus Christ, we get to be adopted as sons and daughters. We get to become part of that kingdom of priests, and we get to show the world the way to worship God to freedom. We get to show the world that worshiping God is the proof. It's the whole point, and it is the plan for being free. Because it's in worshiping God that we learn what it means to be a truly free human being. Because the only human being who has ever been perfectly obedient, perfectly free, has been the high priest, Jesus Christ, who shows us with his worship of the Father through the love of the Holy Spirit how to be free for the kingdom of God. May we proclaim to the world the way to freedom the way to God through our worship of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and praise him together, church.